All right, let's go to the Bible. If you have found Romans chapter 15, why don't you stand and we'll read together God's Word. I'm going to take you to the end of the chapter, Romans 15. We'll start in verse 30 and read down to verse 33. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 30. <clears throat> Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and... By the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray that you would bring healing and strength. I pray that you would bring great resolve and comfort. I pray that you would bring a new patience. I pray that you would be the God of peace and bring real peace. I pray that you would convict sinners that are running. I pray that you would bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus. I pray that you would strengthen your church even today through the preached word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> one of the most natural things for one Christian to say to another Christian is, How can I pray for you? It is a natural act for you to ask someone, It's a good thing to do. How may I pray for you? It happens in Sunday school. In fact, your class will probably start taking prayer requests. You've got to be careful because sometimes that will dominate the whole class. So we're accustomed to asking, how may we pray for you? While that might be a really natural thing to do, I have found that one of the most unnatural responses to that question is actually sharing something substantial to pray for. It's anecdotal, so I don't know that, it, that it's true, but it seems to me that I get more sincere answers from people that are not even Christians than I sometimes do from a Christian when I ask, how may I pray for you? I wonder why that is. I wonder why people in the church, especially the church, I wonder why we are afraid to actually share with one another what we really need prayer for. Is it, is it fear? Is it maybe it's shame? Maybe we're afraid that the prayer request shows that we're not as deep spiritually or we're struggling with some sin. Well, why do you not share? Is it pride? It could be, um, it could be, just feels shallow. What is it that keeps us from actually sharing one, with one another? Whatever it is, it's a, it's a paralyzing plague on the church because we're not, we're not taking care of each other. We have burdens. We know that the blessings are in heaven and people are carrying burdens. Kyler talked about it this morning. And you and I, we've got to find a way to be a bridge from the burden somebody's carrying to the blessing we know is in heaven. We know the one that has the solution for our brothers and sisters' problems. 
At least that's what Paul thought. Think about where we are now. Paul is drawing his letter to a close. He's been writing for 15 chapters. We've got one more chapter, just a couple of weeks in the book of Romans. He's bringing it down to a close. And right here in verses 30, 31, 32, and 33, Paul is asking for help. Paul realizes in this passage, Paul realizes that unless the church, he didn't even know these people in Rome, Remember, he's writing to a church in Rome he's never seen, didn't plant this church. He's asking a people that he's never met to help him, to pray for him. In fact, the way he writes it is, it feels like that he's saying, unless you pray for me, this is not going to happen. So here's what I want to do in the time we have together this morning. I'd like to just do what we always do. Let's go to the passage and let's just pull it apart. There are four verses here uh, in this small Passage, you're going to find this wonderful theology of prayer. I want to just pull it apart and give you some things that you might, might be helpful to you when it comes to your own personal prayer life. And I'm hoping that we can kind of construct an anatomy of effective prayer and open our mouths in prayer to God. Because an effective prayer life happens on purpose. Nobody accidentally, nobody ever accidentally becomes an effective man or woman of prayer. So let's, let's learn from Paul what effective prayer looks like. Let's see if we can enumerate them. Number one, I would say that it starts. Effective prayer, number one, starts with humility. If you're going to be a man or woman of genuine prayer, it's going to take you actually being someone of humility. Now, if you are a Christian, you should have already dealt with some pride because you realize that you were a sinner, you were in need of Christ who died on the cross in the place of sinners. You saw yourself as a sinner and you came by faith to Jesus. That took humility. Pride people don't beg for forgiveness. Proud people don't beg for forgiveness. Genuine prayer starts with humility. You see it in verse 30. Notice the words that he uses. He starts right off by saying, I appeal to you. I would circle that word appeal. It's a strong word. He says that a lot. He wrote to the church at Colossae, hey, pray for me. The church at Ephesians, at Ephesus, pray for me. He wrote to the church uh, at, at Corinth, Thessalonica. Every time he's asking them to pray, but this time he uses this really strong word appeal. It's uh, For those of you that like this kind of thing, it's the Greek word Parakaleo, it is a strong word. Uh, your Bible might say, I urge you. This is Paul saying, hey, I, I need your help. I, I need you to get on your knees and talk to God for me. There's a certain force in this. There's a certain, there's a certain strength in what he's saying. The, the word carries with it this sense of humility, understanding that unless you help me, I'm not going to be able to do this. He, he's got, a, he's got a, a whole bunch of money he's taken from the Greek churches, and he's carrying it to the Jewish churches. He's got a terrible way to travel. He's going to meet some terrible people, and he needs help. You and I, we, we, should, we should come to the point where people can trust that they can tell us things and we're going to make heaven feel the force of our prayers. We're going to pray like, like Ian Bounds writes. Talks about beseeching 
heaven for someone. Are you, are you humble enough to tell a brother or sister what you really need God to do? Are you humble enough to say, this is my condition? I've found that, that people that are not even Christians, when you ask them, what can I pray for you about? They are aware of the terrible problem they're having and ask you straight up, pray for this. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be humble enough to expose yourself enough to a brother or a sister and say, this is what I'm stroke. I need help here. Martin Luther, when he, when he was dying, Martin Luther's a great reformer, Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, as he died, one of the things he said was, we are beggars. It is true. And the truth of the matter is, it's a good way for us to understand ourselves that we need God to do something. And it's good for you to see brothers and sisters as those that can help you and be humble. Now, there's another side of that coin. If effective prayer starts with humility, then let's just step another step into it. Number two, effective prayer is built on trust. Built on trust. In other words, there might be a reason that people don't share prayer requests with you because they don't feel like they can actually trust you. I mean, feel the trust here in the text. Verse 30, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers. In fact, you'll just keep reading. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord. There's this real sense of affection here. There's this understanding that even though Paul had met these people in Rome, he is actually connected to them. That they are family. That they stand on even ground. This is a good thing to remember in the church now. That it takes just as much grace to save the worst sinner in this building as it does to, take, to save the kindest person in this building. We're all sinners alike. And that reminds us, if that's the case, it took that grace to save us, then there's not anybody better. And you need to be someone that is trustworthy. Can, can people trust you? And why don't we trust people? Why don't you trust people to share your prayer requests? Is it because you're afraid people are going to gossip? Is it going to become you don't want all your business in the street? And look, I understand that. You don't want everybody to hear all your business. Don't put it on Facebook. Don't put all your business on Facebook. Don't do that. But we need to have people that you are humble enough to share your request and someone that is trustworthy enough to take that and talk to no one but God about it. Here Paul is, is asking, you're my brother or sister. And not only that, we, we're going to our. I, I found it interesting that he speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord. Commonality. There's something that binds all of us together when you're in Christ that is stronger than the things that would threaten to divide us. And Paul says with humility and trust, I need us to stand at the cross and be able to count on you. Because every one of us here feel like, at some degree or another, we are carrying the weight of the world. God did not design us to do this by ourselves. God has given us a congregation, a church. Paul's writing to a church. And we've gathered together so that we might share the burden, but I can't pray for you. If you're not humble enough to share it, and I'm not trustworthy enough to keep it. You see, effective prayer 
Effective prayer is, is something that starts with humility. It's, it's built on trust, but we've got to keep going. Number three, effective prayer, it stands on rock-solid theology. Effective prayer stands on solid theology. We want to be uh, double-fisted people. We want to be a church that is known for strong theology and, and genuinely spirit-filled. So sometimes you find a church that, okay, they know all of their, got all their theological ducks in a row, but they're dead as a hammer. I mean, it's dry as toast in there. There's nothing going on in that church. Or you have this other church, on the other hand, that, is, uh, that, that it feels so spirit-filled. People are doing laps in the, in the church, but there's not much theology. What I want to do is be a church that is, well, not necessarily doing laps, but you can move a little bit. It is a church that has double-fisted, right? We've got strong theology and filled with the Spirit. You'll notice Paul accidentally here is teaching us. This passage has all kind of theology in it. Notice uh, what he says here in verse 30. <clears throat> I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Here comes the theology. Here's our access. By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Keep reading. To strive together with me in your prayers to God. Let's, let's just go systematically and quickly through it. You'll see that he, he's put before his church brothers and sisters. We have access. Pray by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he uses that full title of Jesus. That he is teaching us even here. He's teaching us that you only have access to God through Jesus that the one way your prayers are heard is when they are carried by the name of Jesus. It's why, we, it's why we say our prayers and we tag on as a reminder to ourselves that this is coming under the authority. I'm asking this because of Jesus. This is a reminder of what happened on the cross. Jesus breathed his last inside the temple. The veil is torn from top to bottom because God did it, opened it up so that the Holy of Holies is given to us in the person of Jesus. It's good for you to remember that the theology of prayer starts with Jesus. Your prayers are answered because of Jesus. You have access to God because of Jesus. And it's, it's teaching us something here that it gives us this full title, Jesus. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus, the perfect man who lived in a way that you and I can't live. None of us are here are perfect. None of us. Nobody. Nobody's ever walked this planet, ever been perfect except Jesus. And Jesus lived perfectly on purpose. Why? To fulfill God's law so that when he goes to the cross, he takes the punishment from God that is to be on sinners and then is able to give the righteousness from God that he's earned to anyone who believes. It's Jesus, but it's Jesus the Christ. The anointed. And, and Paul says, it is our Lord. Isn't it good to know that you could ask your prayers and they go through the authority of the one who is the Lord of everything? That's not the only way you praise. Paul says, I want you to pray for me by our Lord Jesus Christ. But you'll notice that as well in verse 30, also by the spirit of love or the love of the spirit. Let me show it to you. Verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Now, that could be, it's hard to really know exactly what's going on here. It could be 
that he's talking about the Spirit of God that is in every one of us. When you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is what makes us love one another. It could be that. Or it could be that the Holy Spirit in you is an indicator and a display of God's love for you in Jesus. Either way, what we have here is our access is by Jesus and the power of our prayers comes through the Spirit. Even Paul will say that sometimes when we pray, whatever language you might pray in, sometimes that the, that the times we pray that the burden is greater than our language can express and the Spirit takes with groanings that are too deep for words. But keep looking at it with me. The theology has been Jesus, Son of God, the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of God. But notice that the prayers are going somewhere in verse 30. <clears throat> I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God. Do you see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? I don't think Paul is actually intentionally being Trinitarian here. I think he is so theologically minded that he is just teaching us unintentionally that our prayers go to God the Father by access of God the Son, empowered by God the Spirit. Now it should be that the more you grow theologically, the deeper your theology, the better you are at praying. But sometimes it just, doesn't pray out, it just doesn't play out like that. I don't know why it is. Sometimes when people uh, become really strong theologically, growing theologically, getting hold of some really deep truths, sometimes, as the Bible teaches, that knowledge will puff you up and you forget your absolute need of God. That is completely backwards from what it should be. The best theologians in this room should be the most effective prayers. That we want to take doctrine and dig down deep into doctrine so that we can plant devotion and the roots of devotion will be able to flourish because you have strong doctrine and real prayer. It's good for us to build those kind of roots. I think you find it in people like Ian Bounds. I mentioned that. What a wonderful, you can get his... Complete works of prayer by inbounds, or you can read Jonathan Edwards. You, you, in fact, Jonathan Edwards would be hard to read. Read his biography of David Brainerd. There's a book called The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. I can't read but a page of that at a time. Why? It's so filled with a man that's, that's pouring out his heart to God. Effective prayer stands on rock-solid theology. But here's the truth. It doesn't just stay on theology. Let me give you another thing to consider. You'll find it again in verse 30, number 4. Effective prayer involves hard work. Effective prayer. I don't mean just the blessing at dinner. And I think that's always a good thing to do if you sit down as a family at dinner and you thank God for this meal. It is a wonderful reminder in your own life of God's provision, that is a good thing to do. But effective prayer goes a little bit further than that. You'll see the word. It's a compound word in verse 30. Let me show it to you. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Here comes that compound word. It takes lots of English words to give it to us. 
to strive together with me in your prayers. That little phrase, strive together with me. It's the uh, Greek compound word, soon agonizomai. Soon is with, let's take that off, agonizomai, agony, agony. This word is where we get the word agony. It's the idea of wrestling till you're completely worn out. It's the idea of some sort of, of physical contest. It's the idea of having someone with you, of going into battle, not by yourself, but another person at your side, and you moving forward together and pulsing. I want you to come with me. I need real help in this genuine struggle. Here's the great spiritual struggle. This is you and I pressing our needs to God. When Luke tried to describe and he thought back when he was writing to Theophilus and Luke thought back on what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was reflecting on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke reached over and got this word, agonizomai, Jesus agonizing in the Garden, praying and sweating drops of blood. When Paul tried to describe for Timothy what it's going to be like to pastor a church, and what it means to keep your faith, and he's telling him to fight. Paul tells to fight the good fight of faith. He reached over and used this word, agonizomai. This word carries with it the idea of, some of you know the story of Jacob down at the, at the river wrestling with God and saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. Here's the idea. This word is the idea of, of Moses on his face begging God not to destroy Israel. Here's that wonderful woman, Hannah. All she wanted was a little baby. Praying and asking and begging God to give her a child. The priest at the temple wondering, what is that? It's agony. Here is Paul back in Romans chapter 9 when he thinks about people that are going to hell. The Jews are going to hell. These are men and women that he knew. And in Romans 9 he says, look, I myself would go to hell if I could. This is Elijah standing on the mountain, kneeling down and praying, God, send rain. Please, God, send rain. Day two and day three and day four and seven days of begging God. This is Paul being really personal. You hear him say, I need, I need you to help me, to join me in this agony of prayer, to strive with me and do it on, look how personal it is in the verse, on my behalf. Say, what? When's the last time you were worn out from praying? This was a terribly convicting message, honestly, to get ready for. As I was dealing with the words, I was thinking, man, that, I, I, need to, I need to become a better man of prayer. I'm, I'm going to just ask you what I'd ask myself. When's the last time? When's the last time you worked hard? A lot of you are really hard workers. When's the last time you worked hard at prayer? Let us not forget that our endeavor is a spiritual one. We do lots of really good physical things, mental things, even emotional things. Let us not forget that our endeavor is a spiritual, it's hard spiritual work. Effective prayer is hard work. But you'll notice that it's not just vague hard work. Let me give you another thing to consider. You'll find it down in verse 31, number 5. Effective prayer seeks 
tangible results. In other words, we want to see something happen. So you get to verse 31, and uh, you probably have already seen it. Verse 31, Paul has two prayer requests. Verse 31. Let me show, you, let me show them to you. Verse 31. <clears throat> Paul, here's his prayer request. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers, or yours might say, disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem might be acceptable to the saints. So let's deal with the first prayer request. And the first prayer request is that he just will be protected. You're a parent, you have children, it's a good thing to pray. Praying God that will protect your child. He's asking, hey, pray for me that I will be protected. Why does he need protection? Well, don't forget chapter 15, he's described, <clears throat> I want to go to Rome so I can get to Spain, but before I do that, I have this collection that we've taken from all the Greek churches, and i got to go back to that poor church in Jerusalem and deliver this money. And in order to get there and it be okay, I need protection. That's what he's asking for right here. Well, don't forget about Paul. Why do people hate him so bad, especially in Jerusalem? I mean, he used to be among them. Remember before Acts chapter 9, before... Before the road to Damascus, he was one of those persecuting Jews. He knows what they're like. Not only that, right after he got saved, everybody wanted to kill him. Everywhere he went, there was trouble. I mean, in Acts chapter 9, uh, the Jews tried to kill him. Acts chapter 13, he goes to Antioch. The women there tried to kill him in Antioch. Chapter 14, he's been pelted with rocks, hit in the head so hard, knocks him to the ground. They think he's dead. Drag him out of town. Everywhere he goes, there's a riot in Berea. He visits his friend Jason. They break the windows out of Jason's house. He can't go anywhere. In fact, he gets so irritated with the people in Ephesus, he called them a bunch of animals. Acts chapter 21, he goes to the temple in Jerusalem, and there he's almost killed in the temple. Paul's saying, I need, I need something tangible, something real, something measurable. I need you to pray in such a way that God protects me, because if he doesn't, those people are going to kill me. It's good for you to pray good, tangible, measurable, real things. It's fine to pray that God will lead, guide, and direct you. That's fine. Lead, guide, and direct but why don't you and I pray for things you can measure that, that, it, that will not happen unless God does it. Let's ask him to do things that are absolutely necessary. Paul does that in verse 31. He has a personal request, but he also has a congregational request. Do you see the prayer request in verse 31? So look at the second request. Let me show it to you. This is a good thing to pray for your church. He prays that I may be delivered from the unbelievers of the disobedient in Judea. And, here's the second prayer request, that my service for Jerusalem might be acceptable to the saints. What service? Remember, he's carrying a lot of money. He's carrying a lot of money to this old church in Jerusalem, the original church. This is where it all started but remember when uh, the persecution came in Acts chapter 11, everybody ran out of Jerusalem, some of them stayed. And that church that stayed, it really wasn't doing well. Even though it was the original church, it wasn't doing well. And now churches that are made up of a different ethnicity have taken up a bunch of money and sent it back to the church in Jerusalem. And Paul's worried about going in there. He knows that even though they're believers, they're still 
some things that make them think differently. And so he's just saying, hey, when I get to that congregation, you pray that this, this ministry goes well. That whatever tensions, whatever prejudices, whatever, whatever thing that threatens unity would, would be set aside. Asking that God will unify the church and soften hearts. You see, effective prayer seeks tangible results. As he closes down his prayer, verse 32, you'll see just a couple of things. I'll try to uh, put it on the ground gently here. Number six, you'll see that effective prayer submits to God's will. It's right there in verse 32. He starts it out. It, it feels like something Jesus would say. Let me read it to you in verse 32. Paul writes, Here's why we're praying like this. So that by God's will, I might come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. What's ironic is that some say that this prayer request was actually answered as he was arrested and then appealed to Caesar, ended up in Caesarea, and then went to Rome. And you read the end of Acts, and there is some indication that he got to see people, his heart was refreshed. I'm sure that's not how he thought his prayer would be answered. You'll notice on the front end of verse 32, he had submitted himself to God's will. Paul is clear in his desires. He declares what he wants to happen. And in some ways, maybe he did get it. But you'll notice that he echoes Jesus. If you said it in the King James, it would be something like, Thy will be done. A joyful I'm asking you, do you have a joyful resignation to a good God that he's working out things, even bad things, and he's working them for your own good? Effective prayer, maybe this is where you need to be, submits to God's will. One last one, last one before we go. Number seven. Effective prayer rejoices when other people flourish. Verse 33 is really just kind of a prayer wish. He's done this before, and he just sort of closes out this prayer with a little bit of a wish, and he calls God the God of peace. Do you see it in verse 33? May the God of peace, he does that over 17 times in the book of Romans, the God of peace because God has brought peace through Jesus. And he says, I just pray that the God of peace would be with you, the church in Rome. People I've never met. I want you to flourish. Are you, are you able to pray that? Able to pray that for the person that hates you the most or that you maybe hate the most? This is the echo of Jesus. When you think about the person that, that irritates you or that you would consider your enemy, are you able to, to pray this wish on them? To rejoice when someone flourishes if they've made peace with God through Jesus. See, I want us to be a, a church of effective prayer. I want to be a, a man of effective prayer. And it doesn't happen by accident. It happens on purpose. It happens when men and women humble themselves to one another and turn the coin over and then present themselves as being trustworthy. It happens when we 
grow deep in our theology and understanding of God and do the hard work, the agonizing part of prayer when we are specific, asking direct prayers and submitting, submitting our lives to the will of God and, and, and are able to rejoice when other people flourish. Now, I've hit you with a lot today. And after I preach, we'll, we'll sing a song of worship to the Lord. But before we go to that, I'd like for us just to reflect in a moment of prayer together. I want to walk you through a couple of things to think. So would you join me as we pray together? Right here this morning, just bow your head with me. And I want you to think through what needs to change in your life. What, what needs to change for you to become a man or a woman of effective prayer? Have you, have you been prideful? Unwilling to open up to people because you don't trust them? Or let me ask you this, have you, you talked too much, you're not trustworthy? Maybe you've shared something you shouldn't have, and you should go to a person that's been offended and, and just ask them to forgive you. Maybe you've not done the hard work of theology or the hard work of prayer. You've just been slacking the time you spend in prayer. How did it used to be when you were really strong in your faith? And what needs to change to get us back there? It's a really tough time to be alive. We need God to work, and He works through the prayers of His people. Father, thank You for grace. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your church. Lord, help us become men and women of prayer. Make me a man of effective prayer that serves with a church that prays effectively, that relies on God's grace and loves people and points them to Jesus. Be honored here, Lord. These are your people. Encourage them this week and strengthen their hearts and give us a deeper reliance on your goodness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.